joy to hand the preaching slot over to the associate vicar, Owen, for five weeks. The book of James is our topic. Hang on tight. It was phenomenal this morning. I have no doubt it will have been tweaked and be even better this evening. Over to you. Hasn't he done well, though, the last five weeks? Bless him. Appreciate that. I, um, I'm not going to do five weeks on the trot. You'll be pleased to know. I'm very pleased to know. Anyway, um, I've got a clicker somewhere. You've inspired me, Rich. As we begin, it works. Can anybody tell me what they think that strange object might be? Who wasn't here this morning? Who doesn't have too many degrees? Anyone else? Any guesses as to what that might be? Well, no guesses. A biscuit, that's a good guess. Bread, it does look a bit like bread, doesn't it? Like a sort of artisan, Ethan baked loaf, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. Um, a cool box, Zach. A box that you put bones in. He's got it. He's got it. So for a short period in Jewish history, um, in and around Jerusalem, they had this practice whereby when your loved one died, they would, you'd, you'd lay them out in a tomb, like Jesus was laid out in a tomb. And then after about two years, once all of the, um, the juicy bits were gone and you were left just with the bones, um, what you'd do for this, the sake of space efficiency inside your family tomb is scoop up the skeleton, put it into a box just like this, a limestone box, and then handy bit of storage, you slot it onto the, the shelf, and there we are. You can keep all of the family in one tomb. Genius. Um, that was up until AD 70 where they did this, until um, the temples destroyed big upheaval in um, Jewish society in and around Jerusalem at that time. Anyway, they found about 10,000 of these, I believe. Um, but this one is a bit interesting because it's got this inscription. You can just about see it, especially if we zoom in. Look at that. And um, this is an Aramaic inscription. And the inscription reads, going from right to left, Yeshua, no, starts the other side, Yakov, so the, the, the English writing of it goes left to right, fooling myself here, Yakov bar Joseph, Akri Yeshua, which means, of course, Jacob, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Jacob, if you know your history, now if you know your English etymology, uh, James is English for Jacob. So um, just before the King James Bible gets written, um, the, the English translations are using James as a sort of version of Jacob. I think they've got the same Latin root. I'm really going off-piste here. Um, Jacob, the Jacobites were a rebellion against King James, apparently. So 
We say something's Jacobean when it comes from the time of King James. And so, this, you know what I'm saying, James, Jacob, that's all, I'm, that's all this, we're, losing, we're losing time here. Um, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Um, these three names, very common of the era, rarer to have them clustered together. Um, and it's rare, in fact, to have brother of someone on one of these inscriptions. And that would typically only happen if it was someone significant, a significant brother, perhaps. And it starts to get interesting, because if you turn to Galatians 1.18, you will see that Paul is talking to the church in Galatia and he says this, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so in 2002, when some pro at deciphering these things is in and amongst the collection of some private Israeli collector and um, he sees on a shelf, it's been there 20 years apparently, this box and he sees the inscription he has a very professionally measured response of interesting. But he arranges for this box to be examined and then shipped all the way to Canada where it goes on exhibition and it's like big fuss all around the world and, uh, and then big scandal and controversy and there's a big long tr trial that's drawn out and the, the collector is uh, charged with um, is this fake and all sorts of experts are lined up and they, the result was, the trial was thrown out and the result was inconclusive and so there's this lack of scholarly consensus as to whether the whole of the inscription is genuine. Um, it was is definitely an, an ancient bone box from the period, but blah, 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 scholars are divided. I am pleased to say that scholars are in agreement that by far the likeliest author of the book of James in our Bibles was James, the brother of Jesus from Galatians 1.18 that Paul is referring to. So imagine having in your hands the very words of someone who um, has had this incredible proximity to Jesus, growing up in the same household um, as Jesus, seeing it all kind of firsthand and then rising to prominence in this early Jesus movement. If you turn to page 1147, in a Bible that looks like this. There should be some around if you don't have one. Um, then that's exactly what you have in your hands, which is rather exciting. I'm looking forward to sort of digging into this over the next weeks with you all. Some of you will know what it's like to grow up in the shadow of a superstar sibling. Well, that was nothing compared to what James had to deal with, right? This is, this is Jesus. And it's interesting, if you look at the references to him that crop up throughout the New Testament, um, uh, that there was this, this, this um, distance between Jesus and his family. So let's have a look. There's Jesus from afar. There's, I'm way behind. I shouldn't be doing this for myself, should I? I'm way behind. So um, John 7 um, uh, is the bit where his brothers are saying to Jesus, why don't you go down to Judea for the, the festival? You could do some of your tricks there. And John adds, because not even his brothers believed in him. Mark chapter 3 um, similarly, uh, uh, Jesus is passing through and this family come out to try and restrain him because they think he's gone mad. And, and someone says to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. Awkward. And he says, you know, remember this bit, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of God, they are my mother and my brothers. So they can deal with it. Outside, there's this distance but then something changed, because you turn to Acts chapter 1, and 
not only are the you know, signed up followers of Jesus huddled in that room waiting for something to happen, as Jesus said, you know, something's going to happen, um, but his mother and his brothers are there in the room as well. What happened? It's just a guess here, but I'd say that the resurrection might have had something to do with it. You might have thought that the whole public execution disgrace of, of Jesus might have confirmed the family's worst fears about him, that yes, this was the promising carpenter gone wrong who got this whole like messiah complex and religious maniac ideas and we're just not going to talk about him again. They don't seem to have been that involved in the burial. But then they're in the room. And in fact, Paul spells it out in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, he's giving a list of the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And he says that Jesus appears first to Peter and then to the twelve. And then the 500 witnesses, most of whom are still alive. And then to James. Jesus appeared to his little brother. And so with that category-bursting experience, the unconvinced brother becomes the devoted follower, becomes a leader within the Jerusalem church, and, um, and the book of James is his letter written out to the other sort of band of, of Jewish Jesus follower people. This, this movement spread, um, not through the kind of power channels, but amongst the poor. And I think of it maybe like a sort of kind of rogue cell group within the synagogues, you know, of the, the Jesus people. And, and there was suspicion, there was an oppressive state, there were all sorts of pressures on the, these first Jesus communities. Um, and James is writing to them. So we're going to start with James chapter 1. LJ is going to come and read. Have a follow along. We'll go for the first 18 verses, if we may. And then we'll start digging. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives general, generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who dealt is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But those who are rich should take pride in their low position, because they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, 
for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when, by your own evil desire, you are dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Thank you, LJ. Blessed are those who persevere under trial, because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Who does that sound like? Sounds like his older brother. Incidentally, um, have you ever thought about the, um, ever had that nagging question when I was engaging with this? I was like, yeah, but what about the Catholics? Because they've got the whole um, Mary Immaculate thing, as in Mary's perpetual virgin, and the Orthodox Church do as well. The way they work it out is that um, Joseph either had a family, so it could be Jesus' older brother, going by that thing, if Joseph had a family before Mary, um, or his, or his Jesus' cousin just in case that was a nagging question, as it was a nagging question for me. Um, but the more plain reading is that it's Jesus' younger brother. That J- Joseph, when it says Joseph didn't have relations with Mary until Jesus was born, implication being... Anyway, there we are. Um, so, notice at the beginning, verse 1, how he introduces himself. Paul, in his letters, he's often like saying a whole long thing about... Um, you know, who he is, what he's got up to, how he's been called by God. James, none of that. He just simply says, James, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this kind of assumed authority, an established relationship in which James is writing and operating. He's not playing off the fact that he was Jesus' brother, perhaps because he didn't need to, um, perhaps also because that sort of brag would cut right against Jesus' teaching on humility and also Jesus' teaching that actually this family of God trumps, you know, the kind of biological bloodlines that otherwise we can pay too much attention to. James is just servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter was actually written earlier than the Gospels, um, perhaps as early as the 40s um, or 50s. And so you're talking just 10 to 25 years after the original Pentecost and Easter, which Easter and Pentecost, which I find uh, fascinating. Um, and it's neat to see just how many of Jesus' words echo throughout James. And so, for example, G- this is James. He says, do not swear either by heaven or earth, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his stall. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. One more example. James Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Jesus, and these are all from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume. You get the idea. There's 19, at least 19, of these in over five short chapters where where James, he's not directly quoting Jesus, but it's like he's just imbibed the, the teaching of his brother, and he can't help, but this is, you know, this is the stuff that is in him. This is what he has got to share with the church. 
So Jesus is a major influence on James. Another big influence is the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament. So the books like Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, the stuff that's written in little sort of proverbial one-liners, stuff that's made for fridge magnets, stuff like draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. All of this, it's all in James. And when I was a teenager and attempting to read my Bible, like I knew I was supposed to, right? And um, I quickly landed on James as one of my favorite books. Why? Because it's kind of obvious <laughs> and you get it. And it's like straight up, it's accessible. It's not, um, you don't need, you know, commentaries or anything else to kind of understand. It's, it's pretty direct and confronting. And um, yeah, I wonder if some of you have, have had a similar kind of reaction. Yeah, James, yeah, it's, it's great. We get it. Um, interestingly, it hasn't always been received like that throughout church history. And we're going to do a workshop one night um, on Mother's Day in here, um, looking at some of the ways it's been received over time, looking at how context influences our readings. I just flagged that up in case that's the sort of thing that floats your boat. If not, don't worry. He presents this book as wisdom. It's written in the wisdom style. This is what he's got to say to encourage the Jesus movement with. But then he starts with this line. When you face trials of any kind, consider it pure joy. If wisdom is seeing things for what they really are, which I think is a pretty good definition of, of what wisdom is, then what sort of wisdom is this? Is it the kind of dumb, denial, dishonest kind of approach that can't face looking reality in its head? So he starts talking about joy in the face of the pain of life. And that's a key critique of all of this believing in God stuff, right? That, that what we're engaged in is a kind of wishful thinking, escaping some of the pain of reality, and at this point, I'd like you to imagine a, a, um, a, a sort of one of those community projects that's designed to try and get people to engage and play, mu play musical instruments for the first time. And they've got a lot of funding from somebody. And so what they've done is they've booked out the cathedral and hired an articulated lorry full of musical instruments, parked it outside the cathedral, and then they've collected a hundred... 11-year-olds um, from the local schools, none of whom have had music lessons before. That's how they got all the funding for this, this project. And they brought them to the cathedral on the same day, and they said, right, go into the lorry, choose any instrument you want, and then bring it into the, the main body of the cathedral. And we're, once everyone's got their instrument together, we're going we're gonna to form an orchestra, and we're going to make some wonderful music together. And the, the, where they really went wrong on this plan is they, they got tuned instruments in the back of the van. And if they'd gone for, like, you know, just like your percussion instruments, then it wouldn't be any worse than the toddler group here on a, a, a Tuesday when they all bang their stuff, you know, and it's a bit noisy, but it's, it's okay. But this would be truly awful because the only direction they gave, these project coordinators stood up in front of 100 11-year-olds um, with their all sorts of musical instruments, is that when, 
we wave our hands. We need you to play as loudly as you can um, whatever you want to play. And so sure enough, the project coordinators start waving, and then the noise that fills the cathedral is horrific. It's this violence, clashing, nasty noise, except that the, the only people who can't seem to or let themselves believe it are the project coordinators up at the front. And they're like smiling bravely over this noise. They keep on waving their hands, and they keep saying to each other, this is wonderful, isn't it? And the other one's like, yeah, this is, this is great. This is just what we were hoping for. And then the parents are lined down the side of the cathedral, and they're like, who are these nutters who are looking after our kids for the afternoon? Can they not hear what everyone else is hearing? They're engaged in this sort of denial of reality. And that's sometimes, I wonder, how we can look to the rest of this sort of a caricature of how we can look to the rest of the world looking on who are these nutters they might be asking themselves busying themselves every Sunday in some kind of tragic denial of reality they've got a failure to face the music is all of this this strained attempt to keep smiling to keep staying happy 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 escaping reality for some comforting theology that actually might leave us blind to the reality of the situation because we're not brave enough or not honest enough to look at the reality of life. We're just determined to keep on smiling, keep on considering it joy. I dare say that that analysis can sometimes be true of people like you and me, but it's not true of James. It's not true of what he is, is doing right here. His rationale, his reason for joy, second half of that verse, is this, because you know that the testing of, the faith, of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you might be mature and complete. And again, with that word complete, he's echoing the vocabulary of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. He's not saying that God causes the mess. He's certainly not saying that God is behind the temptations to um, despair uh, that we may sometimes feel. But what he is saying is that in the midst of the chaos and the carnage and the pain and the mess of life, what do we find? That there is a redemption-working presence right there with us. And so when the diagnosis comes in or the redundancy is looming over your head, or your best friend dies. When we find ourselves facing serious trouble, actually there is a reason for joy. Because grace is present even there, says James. And you know what? In the midst of that horrific circumstance, actually, we can be changed. Some of the illusions we have about being in control are being corrected. Our small hopes for this or for that to happen in life are now being held a bit more appropriately. And what's happening is we're being led out from some of our numb insulations that we cover ourselves with into a life that is more pulsatingly alive than ever, that matters, a life of trust, of faith. And what we might actually be surprised by is that that is a place of joy. So what is it that threatens you? 
What is it that tempts you to bitterness and despair? For me, in the last fortnight, it is when the two kids have been ill and the emails have kept pouring in about this and about that and I'm supposed to be coordinating some fairly major decisions for the sorts of things that I normally get trusted with but I can't think straight because I've missed sleep for the last few nights um, building up and uh, marriage has been a bit like a cold war at times because you know we haven't had enough time to connect properly because it's been too full and then so when my two-year-old son knocks over his drink again it feels like far closer to the end of the world than it really should in that moment. Some of you will be like, that sounds horrendous. Some of you will be like, really? That's, that's what, all you've got? And you think like, you haven't got a clue. This, this preacher boy has not got a clue what he is talking about. And you would be right. But James really does know what he's talking about. The fact is, in the year 62, not long after he's writing this, he was killed. The pressure that he was living within was all too real and all too horrific. He was taken out, um, probably dropped off a ledge and stones to death to finish the job. And so that's why he's, this is the first line in his letter is to do with facing these, these trials, the hardships, the stuff that is coming against him in life. And that's why he ends the letter here as well, in a call to be patient in suffering. This is the, this is the reality of the situation that he's living within, that his friends are living within, that he's writing to. But here's the thing. He's still advocating for joy, but the reason he's given in that first verse, I don't think is good enough. Just, you know... You know, consider it joy when this stuff, because, because suffering builds character. That's essentially his argument, right? Suffering builds character. Great. Could there not be another way? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm left, left asking. On its own, I do not think that that is consolation enough, really, for, the, um, for him being taken out and killed when, in a few years later. But there is a lot more going on. Now, imagine back to the music project for a moment. We're back into the cathedral, I'm sorry, into that cacophony of noise with the emphasis on the cack, and it is not going well at all in there until the cathedral organist hears what's going on and says, I think I could probably help out a bit here. So he goes out, up his little, into his organ-playing booth, and he turns on the organ, pulls out all the stops, which is what you do to turn the volume up on the organ. He takes off his shoes, puts on his little organ shoes, and then he lays down um, what in classical music is called a ground bass, which is basically like a bass loop, and playing the same little recurring thing over and over. And it's loud and it's deep, and it's filling the cathedral space. And suddenly, there's a little bit of coherence emerging. Suddenly, there's a key with which this sound is, is coming at you. Suddenly, there's a direction as to where this is going. That all the clashing bits, where are they going to resolve to? They need to resolve in harmony with this new bass line. Miroslav Wolf is a rather good-looking theologian. And he's ethnically Croatian, but he got to spend a year, he had to spend a year within the Yugoslav um, military. 
And that was a deeply unhappy time for him. If you know anything of Balkan conflicts, you can imagine why he um, was subject to uh, systematic surveillance and manipulation and interrogation. He suffered many wrongs in that year. What do we do with that, he asks. Well, the first thing he suggests is that we can refuse to view that moment, that season, that event, that, that year for him in isolation. And instead, we integrate it into our life story and we can see the way that what happened contributed to the, the greater good. And, and he's saying, yeah, 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 suffering builds character. But then more than that, he says, we need to look beyond just the scope of our individual life stories and actually spread out a bit further to the, the broad sweep of human history, specifically getting into view the events of Exodus and the events of Easter. These two central moments of God's redemption breaking in to the cacophony. These are the moments where a new ground base gets laid down in the cathedral. Suddenly, there's a key to play in. Suddenly, there's an opportunity for harmony to emerge. Suddenly, there's a promise of a coming resolution. And there's this deep sense that all of this is actually going somewhere. Uh, Wolf writes that the story of Exodus tells us not just what happened then and there, but also what will happen in our own future. Similarly, if Christ's story is our story, he says, then in remembering Christ, we remember not just his past, but also in a significant sense, our future. Jacob, James, whatever his name, Yaakov, <laughs> writing this, he's a Jew, through and through. He's all about remembering Exodus and Moses and, and all that. They, every year they've got the whole Passover thing where they do the, the bread and the, the wine. and um, He's familiar with that. But he's also a Jew who had this amazing front row seat on the second moment of God breaking in. Good ringtone. Say, James, he's a Jew, all about Exodus. Yeah, that's deep within him since he was a little kid. He's had this amazing front row view on Easter. He has witnessed the resurrection. And so in the midst of everything that his community is going through, that he's up against, with a religious establishment that's deeply suspicious of this thing, with an oppressive Roman state bearing down on anything that sticks its head up too far. All these things that really should be stealing his joy, that really should give him the bleak Eeyore kind of outlook on life. Actually, he can't help but call people to this joy that's bubbling up within him. He's this new ground base of, of cross and resurrection that has established something that is taking root and um, it's ringing in his ears. Despite everything, his, his, his perspective, his view is so wide that he cannot help but see deeply where this is going. And that just calls joy out of him. He says at the end of that bit that we read, verse 18, why? That we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He's got a sense of where this is all going. 
towards restoration, towards a future, towards a hope beyond death. And that is the kind of joy he's saying that we can align with now. One theologian, and I love this, imagines it like this. He says that the age of evil and pain will eventually be remembered as a sort of transient flicker at the very beginning of human history. The age of evil and pain will eventually be remembered as a sort of transient flicker at the very beginning of human history. That's the wisdom to see things how they are. Do any of you lack this wisdom? Asks James. This, this big enough perspective? Then all you've got to do is ask for it. It's a gift from the God who is all good. That's what it says in verse 5. But then in verse 6 to 8, it seems to go on a bit of a tirade against anyone who, um, who suffers with doubt. And so I thought it was worth just offering a brief comment on that. Um, because I expect there'll be some amongst us who... Um, you know, if we're honest, occasionally, on a Sunday, we find ourselves deconstructing the whole thing and we're struggling to pray and the imagination is failing and the bottom is falling out for us and, and suddenly that seems to be kind of condemning you as a double-minded person. The, the word that is behind that, that double-minded bit in verse 8, I think it is, is, is literally split-souled. <laughs> yeah, these souls split, hopeless good for nothing, that kind of vibe. And so just to rearrange some of our mental imagination around this, imagine two women. One of them is a very busy mother um, who has always believed, no problems with doubt. She's got a lot going on in her life, but she's always believed. The other one, um, actually, she's got reasons to be disappointed with God. And she believes that she does have a problem with doubt. Now, the busy mum, she actually, to be honest, is rarely at church. She needs to keep up with her social scene, ferrying her kids to the sport, and um, often she just needs to take Sunday morning to catch up with some shopping on the high street, and um, actually her spending patterns limit what she's able to then do with the rest of her resources um, a bit. Um, but she always believed. No problems. For the other woman, the story was different. Even though she was in church most Sundays, if she was honest... There were regular stretches where she suffered a complete failure of imagination with the whole thing. The, the bottom fell out and there were weeks where she struggled to pray. And yet she kept on coming. She kept on loving those around her and sacrificially giving what she had. And she always continued her midweek work amongst the poor. And now you tell me which one you think is the split-souled one that James is having a go at. It's not all about summoning up magnificent levels of, of faith. Actually, sometimes it's about keeping on putting one foot in front of the other in the path of obedience and seeing what happens to your imagination along the way. We may have moments of imagination failure. That's not the problem. The problem is when we're effectively hedging our bets in life, flitting this way and that. And that leaves us, James says, in no position to receive all that God wants to pour into our lives as we live in such a way that trusts him, as we live in such a way that only makes sense in light of the cross and the resurrection. We've got to trust him. And that's where the joy is. I want to finish tonight by telling you about a new hero of mine 
She's called Sophie, Sophie Scholl. I just read about her a couple of weeks ago. And in 1921, she was born to uh, free-thinking Christian parents. And that made her just 12 years old when Hitler came to power. Um, she knew something was wrong, very wrong, when two of her Jewish uh, friends were barred from joining this uh, youth league thing that were all the rage back then, um, girl guides, that sort of thing. Um, but two of her Jewish friends weren't allowed to join. And uh, later, her father was arrested for bad-mouthing Hitler, and her brother spent time in prison because he unpicked the uh, Nazi symbol of his youth league flag. Um, so that was the sort of family she grew up in. Then at 21, she went off finally to, um, oh no, she herself got reprimanded along the way for reading books that were banned as well. What a girl. Anyway, she went off at 21 to the University of Munich. Um, Munich this was the site of where the Nazis had, had burned loads of books. This was no safe place to be a, you know, a sort of student resistance um, freedom fighter at all. And nevertheless, her and her brother, who was also there, and three others and one teacher, together formed this little, little band of secretive resistance. They called themselves the White Rose. They imagined themselves as this, this rose growing up against the big concrete wall, hoping that somehow or another they might find ways of, of pulling chips out of this, this beast, and all the while witnessing to there's, a, there's something better, there's something far more beautiful. This is not so true as a white rose against the concrete wall, that sort of thing, I think. Anyway, they were pretty clever. They were pretty brave with what they did. Initially, it was just getting some tins of black paint and in the middle of the night going out across the university and, and painting down with Hitler. Long live freedom across university buildings. Um, and then they got hold of this illegal duplicating machine, which is like an old school photocopier for those of my generation. And, um, and they just made leaflet after leaflet after leaflet, and they'd get suitcases full, and they'd take them to different parts of the country. Uh, they'd post them from different places to give the illusion of this widespread movement, and the authorities were livid and, and raging, like, who, who is behind all of this? And one fateful February, 1943, her and her brother are up, I think it was in Munich, um, on a balcony above. There's actually a film about it, if you're interested, you could go in watch it, uh, they're up on the balcony above the main university courtyard and they're looking this way and that, finding the right moment to open a suitcase of flyers um, that are going to litter the whole courtyard. A caretaker spotted them, ran up there, grabbed them, said, you're arrested and took them to the Gestapo. Within four days they were on trial for their lives. And you'd have thought that Sophie would be absolutely terrified. She probably was. But she managed to write this, awaiting her trial. I shall cling to the rope that God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even if my numb hands can no longer feel it. As it, as it was, even when the, the judge, the Nazi judge, was raging at them, screaming at them, jumping up and down in the courtroom, she remains calm, unflinching, able to give this account of why she was doing what she was doing, that this was the truth, that actually many other people believed that they weren't brave enough to say so yet, but she regretted nothing of her actions. They were sentenced to death the next day by guillotine. 
she slept remarkably, inexplicably peacefully that night. And then when she woke up, she was able to, to write these words. It's such a glorious sunny day, and I must go. But what will my death matter if, because of my actions, thousands of people are stirred to action? And as I was reading that line this morning, I, it occurred to me that this includes us, hearing the story, hearing the, her words tonight. What will her death matter if, because of her actions, thousands of people are stirred into action, stirred into a brave fidelity to Jesus, stirred into the sort of life that only makes sense in light of the cross and the resurrection. And their poor mother on that day, she's struggling to find words to console her son and her daughter. And she says, Sophie, remember Jesus. And in that moment, Sophie says, yes, mother, but you must remember him too. You must remember Jesus too. Should we stand? And so what is it that is threatening you? What is it that is tempting you perhaps to bitterness, to despair? What is it that's coming against you? James gives us this witness to the fact that joy, a, a reaction of joy in the midst of that, in the face of that, is nothing done or dishonest. It's not a denial of reality. Actually, it is quite appropriate. That tenacious twinkle from somewhere deep inside, that, that bubbling up, is more than fitting because it's real. It's all real, down to the atoms real. The tomb really was empty not so long ago, not so far away. So we remember Jesus. Let's go for it.